from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 20, Terror of Mecha Godzilla. G fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. And in this episode, we will be covering the last film of the Showa series, Terror of Mechagodzilla from 1975. Yep, it's the end of an era. Brian, I think I'm going to miss it. But it's also uh, the halfway point of our Godzilla journey, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, it's hard to believe we're already this far. There are a lot of Showa movies. The Showa movies series is way bigger than any of our others. I think it's the same size as all the rest of them put together. We're uh-huh. talking 15 movies. Yeah. This is a long journey through the Showa series, and it's hard to believe this finally, finally all done. Um, this is a quite a different one than uh, all the ones that we've seen before. I think restricting ourselves to just watching these in chronological order while we're doing this, it really... It, it makes the changes more appear differently as you're going through it chronologically. Yeah, actually seeing these in their context, it makes me see them a little bit differently, I think. Our related topics for this episode are Emperor Showa's first visit to the United States in 1971, Emperor Showa's first press conference, and the Yasukuni Shrine. Well, Nate, let's get on to our last uh, film description for the Showa era. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a superhero defending Earth from alien invaders. This time he's more creature than character, with the anthropomorphisms dialed down substantially despite his heroism. The reconstructed Mechagodzilla is once again a cold robot kaiju controlled by the Black Hole Planet 3 aliens as a weapon of conquest. Titanosaurus is an otherwise gentle amphibious dinosaur who becomes aggressive and violent while under mind control. The brilliant and altruistic biologist Akira Ichinose investigates the appearance of a dinosaur after the sinking of a submarine. Katsura Mafune is a young woman-slash-cyborg who is normally kind and happy, but is icy and ruthless under the alien's influence. Her father, Dr. Shinzo Mafune, is a disgraced and vengeful scientist assisting the aliens with their conquest, though he's sometimes plagued by regret. Mughal is the sadistic and calculating leader of the alien invasion force. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified. The characters' actions always have something to do with the monsters. The film's conflicts are ultimately solved by both the humans and the kaiju. Dr. Mafuni has Katsura unleash Titanosaurus on Tokyo by Titanosaurus retreats after fighting with Godzilla. Later, Titanosaurus and Mechagodzilla attack Tokyo as directed by Katsura and the aliens, resisting the JSTF. Godzilla battles both of them, but the deadly duo buries him in a ravine. The problem is solved when the humans bombard Titanosaurus with a supersonic wave oscillator to incapacitate him. Godzilla defeats Mechagodzilla after Katsura breaks her control of him by committing suicide. Interpol raids the alien's base, but the invaders escape in their ships hidden underwater only to be destroyed by Godzilla. Godzilla then knocks Titanosaurus into the ocean, where he vanishes. 
The screenplay was written by Yukiko Takayama, the only woman to write a Godzilla film. It's a simple and personal story featuring several complicated characters and rich themes. The budget remained low. So much so, some concepts and set pieces from the script had to be scaled back. Regardless, special effects director Teruyoshi Nakano created an impressive new suit for Titanosaurus as well as a mostly new suit for Mechagodzilla. The Godzilla suit was altered slightly again, further hardening his appearance. The attack on Tokyo features excellent miniatures, hurricane wind effects, and pyrotechnics. There are also a few good rotoscope shots in Mechagodzilla's hangar. Some stock footage from the previous film was used. The film is dark, if a bit melodramatic, and takes itself quite seriously. This tone occasionally clashes with moments of silliness, though. While it has science fiction trappings, it's a fantasy film. It isn't an experimental film since it borrows heavily from the 1960s Godzilla movies by featuring alien invaders, mind-controlled monsters, and a no-frills dinosaur kaiju. It also has elements of superhero TV shows in its props and costumes. This film reinforces the style of Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla by having Mechagodzilla as an alien-controlled superweapon meant to conquer Earth. After the modest success of the previous film, the movie studio held a screenplay contest, which was won by Takayama, to find fresh ideas. The studio sought to appeal to longtime Godzilla fans by bringing director Ishiro Honda and composer Akira Fukube into the production and by having a new monster more akin to Godzilla's 1960s foes. Reusing the flashy Mechagodzilla was meant to attract younger fans. When released in Japan March 15, 1975, the film sold 970,000 tickets, the fewest of any Godzilla film. The first cut of the dub version was released in U.S. theaters in March 1978 by Bob Kahn Enterprises under the title The Terror of Godzilla. A second, almost unedited cut of the international version was subsequently released by UPA on American television. Despite being a box office flop, it has since become a strong fan favorite. The theatrical edition of the dub version had several minutes of violence and nudity cut to ensure a G rating, which disrupted the flow of the narrative. The most noticeable examples are abrupt edits that make it appear that Dr. Mafune is shot off-screen, and the deletion of Katsura's suicide, which makes it look like Mechagodzilla deactivates for no reason. When released on TV, the dub film was uncut except for the shot of Katsura's breasts during a surgery. It also included a prologue detailing the origin of Godzilla cobbled together from UPA's releases of Invasion of Astro Monster and All Monsters Attack, making it several minutes longer than the original Japanese version of the film. There are numerous conflicts going on in the story. Katsura is constantly fighting to retain her humanity while the aliens manipulate her using cybernetic implants. Dr. Mifune's outlandish claims get him expelled from the scientific community. Katsura is torn between her love for her father and her disdain for him helping the aliens in his conquest for vengeance. Like Katsura, Titanosaurus is a gentle creature forced to fight against his will. Control, or more specifically manipulation, is the key theme of the story. Professor Oda states that mankind shouldn't have the power to control animals, the implication being that such power would be abused. This is illustrated by the aliens' control of Katsura and Titanosaurus using technology. Elsewhere, Dr. Mofune's vengefulness makes him betray the human race and eventually costs his life and his daughter's life. Katsura's suicide is presented as a noble sacrifice. Hatred is shown to be a corrupting force. There's an applied sense that living beings shouldn't be treated like machines. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio.
Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film in this particular episode. So, Brian, what's your take on this one? I mostly like it, but I have a couple little reservations. I think the, the, I think the 70s stuff finally, finally comes to a point with this, and I feel like we've... We've we've finally done this marathon of all these seventies movies in a row, and I think I want to move on now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we'll get to that a little bit later, I suppose. As for me, as I mentioned in our first episode and in the last episode, unlike Brian, this is actually one of my personal favorites. Though in large part, it's because this was the first Godzilla movie I ever saw. Well, it's a, it's a favorite in in that it's your nostalgia film. Yes. Just like yeah, just like Geigen's my nostalgia film. Yeah, although I do think the I do think this movie has merits. I genuine merits. I mean, this isn't entirely an ironic love for me. If you want ironic love, that's how I feel about Megalon. But this one, I when I rewatching it, I do think there's there's some things to like in it. Yeah, so let's cover the stuff that we like. I think I'll just get the the big one out there first, and that is this movie has my all-time favorite Godzilla entrance. It's good. It's very memorable. I absolutely love this. In fact, you can go on YouTube and find people who have excerpted just that scene and put it up on YouTube for people to watch. It is that good. Because you have Titanosaurus rampaging through the city at night, and then you see this Blu-ray come off screen. Titanosaurus falls over, and then you have this fast zoom on Godzilla, who's got some buildings around him. There are explosions going on bef- behind him, so he's silhouetted against mm-hmm. it. And then right after the camera zooms in on him, the lights come up, and then the Afukabe theme kicks in, and Godzilla just bellows out a roar and kind of looks like he cracks his knuckles a little bit. It's a good idea. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure this one f- was finally the one of those movies where they were like, okay, we don't know how many more of these are going to be made in the future. Like they've done this numerous times in the show series, where they're like, oh, maybe this is the last one, but this one's finally the last one for a while, and I think they knew that. Yeah. And so they wanted to make this awesome entry for a Godzilla for the last one to kind of go out with a great last hurrah. I mean, this film is kind of a, a last hurrah for in a number of ways. Oh yeah, it is. And this is our last Ashura Honda film too. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I think that was actually one of the things I, I remember reading this someplace that this was actually that was this entrance is actually kind of a distilled version of what Honda wanted to do with this movie, which was he wanted to treat Godzilla with awe again, mm-hmm. and that definitely comes through with this. I, I've joked and not so much anthropomorphisms and all that. Like, yeah, like we said in part one. Yeah, yeah. and I I've jokingly referred to this moment as Godzilla's "I'm Batman" moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just it's just absolutely wonderful like if you ever want to just distill just one really awesome moment that cuz the thing that's interesting about Godzilla in this is that he's still the the hero he's still the superhero even but i think they were since they were trying to steer in a, a more serious direction they make Godzilla look a little bit scarier in this one he doesn't look as googly-eyed and friendly and with the dog mouth and the dog face yeah thing. yeah yeah it's, it's a bit different yeah yeah so they were they were meant meaning for him to be you know he's still the good guy but he's a more hardened sort of good guy and, yeah, and that's another thing this is also the last godzilla superhero that we have for a while yeah although uh, piggybacking off of that 
there was another there was a moment later that I just couldn't help but laugh at. I was like, okay, this is intentional superheroing at this point, which is why I intentionally said in part one that Godzilla is a superhero in this when I originally was thinking just doing the Defender of the Earth label. But there was this one moment where you have those those two boys who are trying to inch their way up a little bit closer to get a better view of Titanosaurus. Uh-huh. Well, when they're supposed to be evacuating. And then he gets too close and they freak out and they run. And what do they do? They call Godzilla for help. And then he just magically appears. <laughs> it's kind of like Man of Steel. <laughs> so like half of Tokyo's been obliterated. And Titanosaurus is about to smush the two middle school kids, and that's when Godzilla comes to defend them. And it, it, that is kind of like Man of Steel, where at the end, that one person is being like threatened or whatever, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is such a big deal all of a sudden. Uh-huh. Uh, like Even though like 300,000 people died before, <laughs> before that happened. And it's sort of the same thing with this. But, and I don't, this is the, that's the first time I've watched that and actually made that connection. That's interesting. It, it is, it is definitely a superhero move. Yeah, for sure. Most definitely. In fact, when I saw that moment this time, when I, uh, when I watched it for the podcast, the thought that went through my mind is this Godzilla is probably saying to himself, here I come to save the day. Essentially. <laughs> that's all. Other than saying that, that's the only thing you could make it more superhero-ish. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but it, it was still it was still a cool moment that, that seemed to be a th- one of the things they love doing in this one give godzilla a really interesting entrance onto the scene <laughs> except in this one it's just like poof i'm there <laughs> it's also a magnificent exit at the end where he walks off into the sunset yeah. mm-hmm. in the water and everything Swims off into the water i love the music that yeah. plays during that too uh-huh. yeah they, they did a good job with that yeah uh, it's just it's really interesting seeing that. I mean, if you want to go by the Showa series loose continuity, the the last thing we ever get to see of Godzilla is in Destroy All Monsters. But still, this is a really interesting way for the audience, since this is the newest movie, to end it. Yeah. It's almost in this kind of traditional Western sort of way, too. You know, just going off into the sunset with the pleasant music playing. Also, Titanosaurus, this happens twice with his entrance, where he comes out of the water, there's that explosion, or whatever, yeah. under the water, and then he, can, he comes out, and the camera's, like, down towards the water level, yeah. and it's looking up, and there's yeah, the water that's... Yeah, it's a level shot. Yeah, the water's kind of splashed around a bit, and then there's the, the sun and the clouds, real clouds and stuff, above him, mm-hmm. and it, it looks really good. They haven't done much with real sky action in these movies so far in the monster scenes yeah and honestly seeing that i I was thinking to myself i wish they had done this a little bit more often these ground level shots to really help with the illusion of size like having gator appear and have like the sun and the clouds behind him and stuff yeah cool yeah so so i was i was glad to see you know honda was still trying new things with this one you can tell and it makes it more realistic, I think, just having the real sky. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that any of these backdrops and murals that they did were bad by any means. Oh, but this, certainly not. But it's just it's just more real. Your eyes can uh, your eyes notice the real sky. It's actually not just used in that scene when Titanosaurus first enters. During some of the battle at the end, we get some more low angle shots. Yeah, we do. Yeah, uh, you know, particularly during the fisticuffs between Godzilla and Titanosaurus, 
Mm-hmm. Tyrannosaurus Reef would throw an occasional headbutt in there too. Yeah, he's pretty aggressive. Yeah, the and, monster fights are filmed really well. Yeah, yeah, uh, I very much appreciated that. And uh, then on the opposite end, you had the the high angle shot from above when Godzilla grabs Mecha Godzilla by the tail. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting too. That's the kind of shot we don't see often either. Mm-hmm. There's some you know there's some aerial shots with that. But another one of my favorite moments. And this is one that is actually pretty well known in the fandom. But we get something of a repeat from the previous movie when God's, Mechagodzilla is unleashing his entire arsenal on Godzilla. Yeah. And he's Godzilla, except in this one, Godzilla is making this heroic charge. Instead of jumping around trying to avoid getting hit, he's running straight at Mechagodzilla. Mm-hmm. And there is this insane moment when Godzilla catches on fire. Right. What's crazy about that was that was an accident. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was. It was an accident. But so the spines caught on fire. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, you don't see it for very long because they cut it. But I'm guessing Honda or somebody looked at that after they saved the poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> doused him. They probably thought, you know what? This looks kind of cool. So I think we'll keep it. <laughs> To a certain, up to up until they cut it, yeah, yeah. Uh, I so I just thought maybe it will really, I, I, or maybe they just didn't have the money to do too many other takes. So there's like we'll just stick with it. But I like to think they thought it looked awesome, so they kept it. But yeah, that's probably more likely. Yeah, but then you have this wonderful moment, and if you ever listen to the commentary on this movie, it's very entertaining because it's three guys who they know a lot about Godzilla, but they're more fans than the you know these expert film critics and historians that are usually in these commentaries. And I love the story they tell about this because after Godzilla manages to plow through all of that, and then he just, he gets to Mechagodzilla and just starts pummeling him. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very much a stand up and cheer sort of moment at that point, very superhero-y. And the, the guy doing the commentary said that the, the first time he saw this movie was in the late 70s as a kid at a drive-in movie theater. Mm. And he said that when that moment came up and Godzilla just starts pummeling Mechagodzilla, everyone at the drive-in was honking their horns, nice. which he says is the equivalent of applause uh-huh. at drive-in movie theaters. And I just like, you know what? That's because it's just that cool. <laughs> and I, I love that moment, too. <laughs> It maybe it's the superhero fan in me. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of impressive stuff in this, especially as far as the special effects. Like we've already touched on this a little bit, but the the ground getting blown completely completely apart. Oh yeah, that's amazing. That that looked great. Uh, it was definitely a good idea. Whoever had it, I think it's I think it works really well. It's shocking too mm-hmm. because this never happened mm-hmm. in any movies up till now. And and like it's it's like the whole crust of the earth just gets blown away yeah. by it, and all and and there's this big you know upheaval uh, mm-hmm. of the ground and everything. It looks great. Yeah, and they kind of do something like that again again with Godzilla having these amazing entrances because he pops out of the ground after the Titanosaurus and Mecha Godzilla try to bury him alive, <laughs> and he pops out. <laughs> and the explosions are so amped up. Too like the, there's mm-hmm. the the part where um, Mechagodzilla is being attacked by these planes that are starting to come over, mm-hmm. and he uses the ray, and then the airplanes all just explode. 
mm-hmm. massively, way more than what we've seen in, in any previous movies. Mm-hmm. It's like these planes were loaded with gasoline <laughs> to the hilt or something, and they just, but the explosions are just gigantic. And then it, it happens twice, though. Yeah. Because uh, uh, then Godzilla, when, uh, when our. When he blows up the ships. When our nemesis, <laughs> arch nemesis enemy here, it, it gets in the ships and. The UFOs just start to leave, and Godzilla sees and he's like, "Okay," it just blows the whole <laughs> like, thing up, yeah, and like, all of oh, them blow up nope. just just as much as those planes did yep. earlier. And it's like, "Wow, that's a really fantastic explosion for for just those." But it, it, the explosions are like impressive in this. Yeah, they're not, they're like overloaded. Yeah, as we've said before, uh, Nakano loved his explosions. Yeah, there are more explosions in this than fire. Yeah. Guy can have more fire, mm-hmm. and Megalon had quite a bit of fire too. Yeah, but this is more just out and out explosions. I guarantee you, if Michael Bay had ever watched any Godzilla movies, the seventies were probably his favorites. They were on TV a lot. <laughs> was the, yeah, this was on TV, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Did you notice the use of parallelism actually toward the end of the battle between Godzilla and uh, Ichinose? Because he goes for Mecha Godzilla goes for Mecha Godzilla's head after Ichinose has gotten free of his of his bindings, the ropes, and is strangling the the other alien dude. Oh yeah, because he's in the mm-hmm. the hole. Godzilla's in the hole, and then, yeah, uh, yeah, and then he's getting free. They both the get ropes, free they both at the get same the, time because yeah. the yeah, yeah, yeah. the film jumps back and forth between them. And then when Godzilla goes for the head, you've got. Oh, it's just like, like strangling it's, one of the bad guys. It's just guys. like the Godfather when they have the parallel, <laughs> parallel stuff going on. This was three years after the Godfather. <laughs> Godzilla father? <I> mean, <laughs> it's a good filming technique, though, at any point, though. It, it's nice to have that. Th- those things go together. Mm-hmm. Also, I think probably the one of the best parallel scene things ever that I thought worked was definitely Silence of the Lambs towards the end when mm-hmm. they're coming up to the houses. And she gets the real one, and they get the <laughs> fake one. It's like, oh, oh no! Yeah, like that's, but th- this was good. I, it is nice to have the sort of two heroes break free at the same time. It's cool, mm-hmm. and it uh, it helps to ramp up the tension for both of them. Makes me wonder if that was in the script or not, or if they just decided to do that. You don't need necessarily need a script telling you that. No, not necessarily. But it's a good movie thing to do cinematically. It seems like a very a very Honda thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking Makes about sense. a guy who's a student of Kurosawa. I'm sure mm-hmm. he picked up something like that from him. Yeah, it's a good technique. So we have another new monster in this one. We have Titanosaurus. I actually really like Titanosaurus. It's a, it's he's meant to be a throwback to Godzilla's '60s opponents, where most of the time they, they were they had relatively simple designs. They weren't super flashy. They were just large animals or large dinosaurs. And I think they came up with a really interesting design for Titanosaurus in this. Although, and weirdly enough, there is actually a dubious genus name for a dinosaur called Titanosaurus. They have nothing in common. I just felt like throwing that little bit of trivia out there. I I really like the idea of doing the wind thing again, because we haven't seen that in a while. It's been a long time. Yeah. Because like Ghidorah sort of in Gigan he sort of blows Godzilla towards the the Godzilla tower thing with that wind but that that isn't very big but really Rodan's the one that's known for creating 
massive wind damage with stuff. Yeah. And now we're going to do that again. Well, and what's interesting about this is, you know, he does it with that fan tail. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that either Titanosaurus or his his alien controllers figured out that they could do because I think what is the, that tail is meant to do is actually to help him swim. Yeah, and instead yeah, he, it becomes this evil. Yeah, he because he now. unfurls it, and you could tell he probably flaps that in the water so he can swim. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that they found a different use for it. Yeah, it's kind of a corruption of the original purpose. Yeah, which is which is a the theme big theme that seems to be going on. Yeah, that's yeah. the whole thing, uh-huh. and that's the other thing that makes Titanosaurus interesting because we've seen mind control kaiju before, but even when they weren't controlled by the aliens, which is what it was most of the time, they were still aggressive creatures in their own right. Titanosaurus, even though we only really see it once, Titanosaurus is presented as a victim. He's a gentle creature who's being forced to do this. Yeah, as opposed to like Ghidorah, where they take the mind control away, Ghidorah is still evil. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, none of these monsters up to now have been... Of cast in this light. Yeah. It's more kind of like a character character trait. Yeah. And I, that's something that I find really, really interesting in this. And I don't think we see it repeated again. I don't think so. No. And that's what makes it interesting. It's it, you are forcing you're forcing a creature that would not normally do this to do something tremendous, you know, tremendously evil. You're using something completely innocent as a weapon. That is yeah. real. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah, and it echoes the manipulation parts of the rest of the story. Yeah, so it all that's all unified in that way. Even though it's unified in in this one movie, and it's not really unified across the rest of the series. But this is sort of, this this movie is self contained in a lot of ways. Even though it's uh, sequel ish, <laughs> I, I guess would be the way to put it. But it's but it's. Uh, it has a lot of self-contained story elements because the story is a very different kind of Godzilla story. Yeah, it most definitely is. And I know there are some people who don't like how Titanosaurus sounds, but I've never been bothered by that. I'm I know about, you I have about 50% of that feeling. Titanosaurus is interesting because it's it's a throwback, but it has but it's next to Mechagodzilla and is fighting with Mechagodzilla, which Mechagodzilla is one of the more outlandish 70s creations and so and very flashy like a, yeah we have a very flashy 70s creation standing right next to a, a very throwback 60s kind of creation and it's almost like the godzilla series it's, it's like look how far we've come by putting these two next to each other you see what i mean it's like oh okay we, we have both decades we have a foot on each side of the mm-hmm. stream or whatever. I, I, and I actually have a two interesting thoughts uh, with that. In some ways, it actually kind of mirrors what was going on with the production of this movie because you had people like Afukabe and Honda coming back, and those are the old school guys back from when the series was at its heyday. But they're working with a lot of people who had been working on the films in the 70s after they had wrapped things up in 1969. So you so you have a little bit of that, but I also think just from a visual and story a storytelling standpoint, having these two together makes it interesting because a lot of times when you pair things like this together, particularly if you look at things like like comic books, they do this all the time. Having two characters who are very different from each other 
paired up can create some very interesting dynamics, both in terms of their personalities and their abilities. Uh, like a lot of times, they end up being opposites too. So, for, you know, for example, on the on the new Flash television show, you have two villains, one named Captain Cold and one named Heatwave. And what they have in common is they both use technology, specifically these high tech guns. It's just that one guy has a freeze gun and one guy has a heat ray mm-hmm. and their personalities match that so heat wave is much more impulsive he's much angrier and captain cold is more calculating he's more patient things like that and they so their powers build off of each other and they their personalities kind of clash and mesh at the same time as well well right in that there's more going on I mean, the the other extreme of this is Megalon, where we have Megalon and Gigan next to each other doing all this stuff. And I'm like, these two are replicates of each other, <laughs> and there isn't really anything going on with this pairing. They look really similar. They even sound similar. They're designed very close-wise yeah, to each other. These two so, big clawed creatures. Yeah, and there's nothing that really comes out of that that's interesting particularly and at least this is more interesting there's more going on I think. Mm-hmm. yeah and also kind of backing up a little bit on the on the on that uh, got me- uh, titanosaurus's sound he also i always thought that when he wasn't roaring and he was just grunting he sounded like a horse snorting mm-hmm. <laughs> but I-, I grew up around horses for a little while as a kid so i know this stuff <laughs> i've also heard some fans theorize that the reason the aliens are using Titanosaurus is because this Mechagodzilla Mark II is probably designed to be a long-range combatant. That's why he doesn't really get into a lot of fisticuffs in this movie. And when Godzilla does get close, he can't fight nearly as well. Mm-hmm. He could do that in the previous movie. So they wanted Titanosaurus to be there as the to be the melee stuff, to do the close-range combat and probably keep Mechagodzilla safe. Because makes sense, yeah. Because as soon as someone got in close on this Mechagodzilla, he couldn't defend himself nearly as well. And I, I also like the the other throwback element of Titanosaurus, which is that they figure out he has a weakness that they can exploit. That was actually kind of interesting you know, with the with the supersonic waves, because mm-hmm. then it gives the our human heroes something to do, so they can free up Godzilla from having to do with deal with two monsters at once. And that actually was a really interesting dynamic, I thought, with this as well. Because in most of these 70s movies, Godzilla had a tag team partner. And this one, he, it's two on one. Yeah, Godzilla's alone. Yeah. And I thought that that made it interesting as well. So the, you really are stacking the odds against our hero here. So we have our, our new Mecha Godzilla in this. Now, I know some fans have referred to him as Mecha Godzilla 2 even though that's really what you call the 90s one. But uh, he was slightly redesigned. Uh, the suit was almost entirely new from what I read, except for the head. They kept the head. I thought they had some really interesting and ambitious uh, shots in this. Um, the The rotoscoping, as we mentioned in part one, when you're in Mechagodzilla's hangar, is actually done pretty it well. It looks great. Yeah. And the thing that actually got me the most excited is I love the fact that we actually get to go inside Mechagodzilla in this. Mm-hmm. We see the inner workings of Mechagodzilla. And we see how everything's put together inside of him. And it actually looks like they were trying to pay attention to some sort of logical detail in there. Because you can see the little components that make up the 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 eye lasers and such in mm-hmm. this. And 
I was, to be honest, just really, really excited about seeing that. And in a way, actually, I feel like this movie kind of predicted the future because you have a line from Mufune who says, if you want to make Mechagodzilla perfect, you need biological components. Now, that was a foreshadowing for what they do with Katsura, but mm. I kept thinking to myself, holy crap, they, you anticipated Kiryu in the Millennium series, because mm-hmm. that's what you, they literally do. They give yeah. me, that Mechagodzilla a biological CPU. Mm-hmm. And I, so I thought, wow, you, all, you had the kernel of an idea there, movie, and then they, it took them 30 years, but they made good <laughs> <Yeah>. on it. <laughs> Another thing about, the, about those hangar scenes is I really love Fukabe's music in those scenes. It really creates a sense of dread around Mechagodzilla. Yeah, there's a lot of like pseudo apocalyptic music going on. Yeah. With this. Yeah. And it, it creates a, a tremendous amount of atmosphere and I think lends some legitimacy because, as you pointed out, Mechagodzilla is a little outlandish, but the music, I think, actually lends him some credibility. And uh, oh, did you notice, though, there was this funny little thing? <laughs> uh, in this one, there's, there was one scene where it looks like the aliens have a little salute. That they do, they kind of bring their uh-huh. hand up to their chest, and so does Mechagodzilla. And Mechagodzilla does yeah. the same salute. Yeah, when they when they uh, turn him on for the first time, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's mm-hmm. actually kind of cool. Yeah, and a little disconcerting at the same yeah. time. <laughs> I think I only caught on to that little detail after watching this for like the I don't know. 20th well, well, time. I've seen this so many well, times. It's not even funny, but yeah. 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 Well, I, what's great is nice that little touch. I think you only see uh, the aliens do it once. And yeah. I still, it was still enough for me to think back when I see Mechagodzilla do it. Like, they did that. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that that was interesting. You can definitely tell that Mechagodzilla is this, this very militaristic mm-hmm. uh, sort of kaiju. Well, he's being controlled by a very militaristic lot. So it's it's interesting. I'm not sure if they had done something like an actual salute up to the head, if that would have looked ridiculous or not. I think I like the way they did it's it not right as there. A, it's more alien to do it a different way yeah. up to your head. Yeah, and it doesn't. I think it wouldn't look as weird. I think if, by doing it this way, it, it was, I think it might have just looked borderline silly if he did it any other way. Yeah, probably. This is, this is actually oh okay. I accepted it relatively easily. I mentioned in the the previous episode how it dawned on me watching the previous one that the Mechagodzilla is kind of like the Terminator. So now whenever I think of Mechagodzilla talking, it's always with an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice. Accent. Yeah. And (laughs) there was, so now whenever I'm, well, at least the show of Mechagodzilla. So now I feel like if I was to do a commentary for either one of these movies, I would just be throwing out lots of Schwarzenegger one-liners throughout the movie and i thought of one while i was watching this when the the helicopter with the uh the oscillator comes over the hill and mecha godzilla sees it and i think godzilla ends up stopping him from attacking it but the first thought that went through my mind was get to the chopper <laughs> <laughs> oh and then there's the other parallel that we have we have the actor who played sarazawa back and he's playing like this a mad scientist. Weird version of the of Sarazawa. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that. Mafune in this is interesting because it's like I, Dr. Wily. 
<laughs> it reminds me of Dr. Wiley from Mega Man. I could see that. The hair and everything. I'm surprised I didn't think of that, although I've heard some people say he looks like Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Crazy Colonel Sanders. But yeah. Crazy Colonel Sanders. But yeah, I, I was thinking about that. In a lot of ways, Harada is playing Sarazawa if he had been handled in lesser hands, I think. Like if this if Gojira, I mentioned this in the in that episode, if Gojira had been an American movie, Sarazawa probably would have been like Dr. Mifune. Maybe, yeah. But I can't fault Harada in this movie. I, I you can tell he's he's really giving it his all in this. And, oh yeah, the character is just weird. Yeah, the the character is weird. But at the same time, I I understand him and I'm sympathetic toward him and I think he has more layers to him than your typical mad scientist. Because a lot of times mad scientist characters are very one-dimensional. They're driven by you know, a thirst for power, world domination, you know, vengeance, something along those lines. And you have that in Mafune. But Mafune also has a daughter that he loves very much, and he wants to do right by her. And you can tell but that he's blinded by anger and his yeah, revenge is just yeah, trumps and, everything. Yeah, and he starts to realize as time goes on that he's gotten himself in so deep he's hurting his daughter. But by the time he realizes it, it's too late. It's particularly funny. I I really laughed a lot this this last time around when I saw this movie at the part where it's almost like like behind the music, little flashback that they do for the professor. Yeah, and, and he and they show all these old looking photos of him doing various stuff in his career, and then these few pictures have him presumably like ranting about Titanosaurus or something, and then he gets like taken down by a group of guys, and he's like on the floor. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> oh. I it's just great. It, it's it, it's so like it's so wonderfully over the top. Yeah, that's just funny. But like the, these guys are like literally piling on top of him. Yeah, you know, <laughs> as he's as he's ranting and trying to like escape or something. <laughs> they yeah, tackle him. It it's is like it's like the scientists are playing f- like football all of a sudden in the <laughs> office. It, it, there's definitely some melodrama in this. I was thinking that when I, as I was watching it, it's like, you can tell a woman wrote this. I mean, I know that might sound, sound a little sexist, but yeah, it's, this is a story that's very much focused on relationships and emotions and things, particularly things of melodrama. Yeah. Particularly things of, yeah, of an emotional nature are ramped up a little bit more than they probably would have if they had, if this had been written by, any of the other screenwriters that they would have had. That's actually one of the things that makes this film unique in a, in a lot of ways because it's the only Godzilla movie that was ever written by a woman. And it definitely shows. Yeah, holding a screenplay contest is is rarely the right way to go about doing things. It's an interesting idea and all, and I can see sort of why they wanted to do it. But I, I think wasn't it Honda who was a little bit not thrilled about this whole arrangement? <laughs> Yeah, I, I have read that. I do think... Like, he said something about her story was not very cinematic. And I think what he meant by this was that a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie is, like, on an internal slash emotional level. Yes. Like, we, we don't get to actually see anything taking place. It's all, like, a lot of it's internal, which that doesn't often make for a good movie sometimes. I mean, if, it's, if the whole movie's melodrama, then and there's 
significant mental actions that occur throughout the movie. That's a little different, but, but this is, it has a lot of internal stuff going on because it's like internal stuff with the professor and his career and his desire for revenge. That's pretty internal. And then there's, uh, the conflict going on in Katsura where she's, uh, you know, not wanting to be manipulated and, and uh, is torn by all these different emotions, but we don't get to really see that because it's all internal. And so like, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. That's more, cerebral and more melodramatic. Yeah. And I think that's partly that and the, the ambitious concepts and set pieces that the script originally had was why it, the script was actually revised, I think at least three or four times before they started filming it. Uh, I remember reading that and I know Honda liked her. He liked Takayama, Mm -hmm. but I do, yeah, he did have some issues with how the script was written, and I do think they spent probably spent a lot of effort trying to iron those out in the revisions. Speaking as a writer myself, I know all about that. Do you know who it was that said that this mo- that this story doesn't sound like a Godzilla story? I know we read it somewhere, or saw it in a magazine, or saw it in something, but somebody made the comment that this doesn't seem like a Godzilla story. And if you've seen in an order, like we've been doing with this podcast, it's a really different Godzilla movie. There's a lot of stuff that is not in any of these other movies at all. And even though it's trying to sort of echo the first movie, some, and we do get a little bit of that, but it's, it's echoed in such a turned about way that it's hard, that it's not something you'd recognize immediately. It's not like a J.J. Abrams rehash connection no. that's, that's blatantly obvious to, you know, one-celled organisms that are in the theater. I think where I come down on this is it, it comes down to a matter of tone. And I, I like the tone of a lot of these movies from the 60s especially, but the, the tone of this, where I run into a difficulty, is with the, the aliens, the bad guys in, yeah. this, in this movie. And the guy that's in charge. And Mughal. Mughal. He's weird. These aliens are like genuinely the weirdest aliens we've seen yet. Yeah. And you'd think it would be the cockroaches that'd be the weirdest ones. But the cockroaches like behave themselves with more dignity. <laughs> like here's, here's the issue. Like at the beginning where, where they talk about where the mad professor lives and everything, and they're like, "Oh, it's the it's the big house. It's the last one on the street, and all this." And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, yeah, we kind of get the idea. It's the last house on the left, right?" Uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah, and did, but, did you also notice that some of the some of the trappings of of the Mifune house are kind of like old Universal horror movies? It, the crows with the house everywhere, and, yeah, and just the overgrowth, uh-huh. the big doors, secret passages. Yeah, it's really lining up a lot of. Uh, stuff there for once. And then it, it, like I counted the number of times that we have an evil laugh in this movie. How many times are six? <laughs> Most of them come from Mughal. Yeah. Six. And I'm not counting, you know, an evil laugh and then a sentence and then another evil laugh. That's counted as one still. And it's okay. six. Six uh, instances. Yeah. The cockroaches and emperor Antonio didn't even do this. Yet the guy that's still doing the laugh at the, he's still doing the laugh at the end, at the end of the movie. After all of his plans have failed, I know he's the, practically the only one left, and, and he's like ha ha ha, and I'm like, why are you laughing? I am invincible. You, you've, you've literally failed on every level. Mechagodzilla's dead, 
and, and and then he jumps into the water, swims down to a a ship, UFO, or, uh, whatever, and then ten seconds later, he's instantly vaporized. And so this guy's like <laughs> le- doing the evil laugh, all just up to right before he's vaporized and, and dead, and then like the outfits and, and the the costuming, the the silvery costuming, that that's normal kind of crazy. But then there's the helmets they wear. Yeah. Now I will tell you. I think I would have been able to go along with what they had, except for the helmets. The Take helmets kind of... Take those off. The helmets kind of wrecked it for me. And I think even the helmets might have worked, if not for the antennas. The appendages that are attached to them. Yeah. Uh, they could have glued on some more loud stuff, maybe. Like, they could have added some Viking horns or, like, <laughs> blinking lights or those little those little uh, springs that have something on the end of them. Like a, yeah. like a, uh, like a little ping pong ball. Or, like, put a, put it, like, the best thing would be a spinning propeller. And put that on the top of them, like a little beanie thing with a <laughs> propeller. That, that, it really wouldn't have made it any more silly than it already was. It, it's, and then, like, the, probably the, the craziest thing in this movie is the fact that he was whipping his subordinates. I know. That's probably one of the most screwball things in any of these 70s movies uh, at all. It's, you know, I was watching that. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, wow. I realize this is supposed to show how ruthless and evil doesn't and just downright off, nasty come off he's like supposed that. to be. Uh, but I'm like. Yeah, he's nasty. He's being nasty. All right. But, but I'm like, because he's like, he whips them and then he tells them, take them to be executed. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh, but it's just it's hard. to. I can't take it seriously. I'm sorry. I know this is supposed to show how just downright nasty you are but just but, and it, like i think it would be it would be more normal if we had had a sekizawa kind of script that's light throughout but with this we we don't get light we get dark and we get what i would call dark tm you know the <laughs> trademark at the little corner yeah. of, of that word where it's like oh this movie is officially dark everybody just so you know we're doing that now and i'm like okay sometimes that works Sometimes it doesn't work, but if you're going to have a movie that's dark, quote in quotes, TM, if you're going to have that, then maybe not the silvery suits with the whipping and the helmets and the, and the, and the, uh, all the stuff that comes along with it. Well, and what's, it re- makes it even more ironic is Mughal is played by the same actor yeah, the same as dude. our villain yeah. from the last movie. I can't believe I never figured that out until I watched it this this time. <laughs> they could have... Well, no, there's no uh, whiskey or, or cigars in this. Is there, there is. He has them back. Mufune and the uh, the other guy, oh, the yeah, second in command, are drinking wine. Yeah, well, that's different than the brandy, carrying the brandy snifter around and... So it's it's toned down in this one compared to last yeah. year. But there's so much other stuff that's that's out of out of proportion that it doesn't really matter. But I feel like I'm watching them. It's like the tone is super dark, and definitely the music is, is dark TM. But then we we get the the aliens again, and I'm like, oh, the, okay. Now we're going back into silly land, and then we have to go back out of silly silly land because the 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 kaiju plot is the, the actual kaiju stuff. That's dark. Mm-hmm. But then we, it's, hmm. Well, and the thing that gets to me about the aliens in this is there are, when they're not wearing their uniforms with the, with the helmets, when they're wearing human garb, they're actually really intimidating. 
particularly the second in command when he's messing with Katsura. Mm-hmm. That guy is genuinely creepy. When you see the two of them talking at the beginning when they're meeting in you know, a business office, not in some big elaborate set where they're laying out their plan, but in a business office because that's their cover. He's not laughing maniacally or anything. They're being. No, that seems pretty evil. Yeah. You know, it seems like it's like they put the uniforms on and they become cartoon characters. It, yeah. I don't understand what it is, but you know, but when they're not. They're genuinely good villains, and they fit mm-hmm. in with the tone. Yeah, it is better that way, actually, the, the other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, I don't know what it is. I mean, even some of the stuff, like they have the those scenes later where uh, you know, they have that weird flashback sequence with the guy who had escaped from them, was one of their prisoners, mm-hmm. and he told them that you know they had you know, pretty much cut out yeah. his vocal cords so he couldn't yeah, talk. Yeah, that's pretty dark. Yeah. So, and then the Interpol agents have to save them later on when the base is self-destructing because these guys yeah. love blowing up their bases. Yeah. <laughs> they got self-destruct buttons on everything. It's like Bond. Yeah. <laughs> but, so it's like, there are points where the movie is making it clear you're supposed to take these guys seriously. They, they're, they're very much evil but then they have these just outlandish moments. And yeah, it's, it's undermining yeah, it, the tone. It's not, I wouldn't consider this kind of stuff a, an egregious violation or whatever that, that totally ruins the movie for me. It's just that I did laugh a lot when, when, the, when some of these antics are, are going on with the, the aliens. Yeah. And, and it, on a certain level, it's entertaining. I think, sure. <laughs> but not how they would have wanted it, I think. But mm. but that's one of the things, because on the other hand, well, and the other issue that you run into with these aliens is they're supposed to be the same aliens from the last movie, but we never see them revert to ape form. Yeah, they're not simians this time. Yeah, even though they're supposed to be from the same planet or mm-hmm. at least the same area. Mm-hmm. But they're all, every source I looked at all listed them as this being the same aliens. And I think it would have been fine if not for that one unmasking. There's only one in this movie where we had several in the last. Rather gooey unmasking. Yeah. Now, there's more. I think there's still connections to Planet of the Apes with it because he looked the the one guy who gets unmasked looks like a radiation-scarred mutant, which they had in the second Planet of the Apes movie beneath Mm -hmm. the Planet of the Apes. But that's the only time we see them, so it begs the question, do they all look like this, or is it just him? It sort of implies that they all do. Yeah. And the revenge theme, I don't I don't know if that makes it more cartoonish for me or not. I think maybe it's just that in the past five, seven years, we've had a lot of movies with revenge plots. We have. Somebody, and- somebody apparently was a really big fan of movies that have a predominant revenge plot, I've had my fill of them. I can understand something else. Well, and I understand that. And revenge plots are easy and they can be oversimplified, overly simplistic. And trust me, I, I, that's why I, I'm always amused when it seems like a story is presenting you with a revenge story and it turns out to be more than a revenge story, which I'm very appreciative of. Yeah, this has more going on than just the revenge yeah. thing. Yeah, well, thankfully. and that's the thing, and that's the thing I really like in this one is that yes, it's a revenge story, but it's not oversimplified. There's a lot of nuance to it. Yes, Mofune wants revenge on humanity because they rejected him, 
they labeled him an outcast. They told him, you are insane. Your claims make no sense. We don't want to have anything to do with you. But And he seems, at the beginning of the movie, to be wholly invested in that, even has some of those maniacal laugh moments. Thankfully, he only has one that I can recall, mm-hmm. and it's early on. But then, in, and I think this is why I'm so grateful that Harada played this part, because he gives a lot of layers to Mafune, because you find out after he was cast out of the scientific community, he lost his job. His wife died in disgrace and poverty, and that's a great sign of shame right there. Uh, Yeah. So you can – I get the implication from that that Mofune very much loved his wife and was – it just fueled the anger that he already felt. I mean it's it's one thing to reject him, but then the consequences of it was the death of his wife in shame. Mm -hmm. Katsura – it very much affects her and he's always trying to help her although i do find it somewhat humorous that as soon as she has her little accident the aliens show up and scrubs like yeah. within two seconds well and then the fact that but, she gets electrocuted twice <laughs> and yeah and i'm like god buy a buy a surge protector already <laughs> gosh and then like i said he just keeps getting sucked more and more into it well, because and then it undermines want, him and then, and then it, it ends up affecting himself and katsura yeah it's it yeah. just it, so you can tell but actually one of my my favorite scenes uh with mafune where i think you really get to see harada pour a lot into his performance is after katsura's second surgery and mafune is coming in to talk with katsura she's she's unconscious laying on a table he's he's hearing all of the mechanical parts inside of her and he's mm-hmm. it's he's starting to realize this has what has become of his daughter because of what what he's let himself do and he says i am so sorry mm-hmm. i am so sorry he's not the mad scientist anymore at that point not the tragically insane mad scientist anymore he's a father who has realized what he's let happen, but he's also realizes, I think later on, I think this is reflected in Harada's performance after this point, because he's still going along with the aliens, but you get this sense of, I know how deep he's gone. I am in too deep. I can't get out. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to have to keep going forward with this. And then much like with Sarazawa, he dies tragically, but in a much different context, Mm -hmm. there's no redemption for him. We get some redemption for Katsura, but Katsura was always an innocent victim to begin with. Yeah, she's been, yeah, she's a victim of the whole thing. Yeah. And then what ends up, we have a little bit of irony with it, though, because Mughal uses Mufune as a human shield, and that's how he dies. Mm -hmm. It reinforces this idea that this entire time, he was nothing but a tool to them. Right, yeah, they're, they're not... They totally weren't with him. They were just for using him, which goes back to the manipulation theme of the plot. Yeah. Like I said, it, it, it Mufune in some ways does also play into some of the inconsistencies, but at the same time, I feel like it's still more consistent than the aliens by far. And yes, it's a mad scientist. I wasn't bothered by the whole mad scientist thing. Maybe it's because I read too many comic books. Mad scientists don't bother me. If they're done well, I can go along with it. It's even if it is a common character archetype, 
Katsura and Mofune, when they're done well, I think are probably two of the greatest strengths of this movie. And why a lot of people in the fandom, along with the the great kaiju action, I think that's why they appreciate this movie. Because despite its inconsistencies, I do feel like this script is more focused and has better characters than the previous movie. And so she's a... It's still her, but she has cybernetic components, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of... Interesting, because this is just two years after Westworld. The original film. Yeah. Because that was 1973. Yeah. I sort of wonder if anything came out of that that got into this. Yeah, I think the term for that is is transhumanism. This idea of using technology to enhance ourselves. But then it starts to blur the line between what is synthetic and what is real. And yeah, that was very much a big thing with the with the original Westworld film and this was not too long after that and you definitely get a lot of themes like that in here um the most i think one of the more touching moments related to that is after Katsura has been wounded when the Interpol agents raid the base Ichinose is holding her and he says tears you are human mm-hmm. when before that she was being very cold yeah. and saying I- i'm not the girl you used to know Mm-hmm. I'm not her anymore. Like she's asserting this new identity, but it's, you get the impression it's a programmed identity, a manipulated identity. Yeah. Yeah. And the line is blurred even more with her because she was originally human. And then they put all of this synthetic stuff into her to keep her alive, mm-hmm. which I think adds to the tragedy uh, for her and that's one of the things that really does bother me because i the version of this movie i grew up watching was that heavily edited theatrical version mm-hmm. of the dub version and i couldn't watch the japanese version and one one it was also horribly cropped by the way no I, shock there yeah and so when i finally saw this japanese version and there was so much i didn't see katsura shooting herself the scene afterward that you know that contrast that they have you know with Godzilla being triumphant and going off into the sunset but Ichinose is laying Katsura out in a you know in this grassy meadow mm-hmm. with her body she's died I, I didn't get to see any of that stuff it looked almost like she was wounded and that somehow broke the control mm. it just it didn't make any sense they had to get a G rating that bad that these edits just ruin the story in a lot of ways. Yeah, it obscured a lot of things, I'm sure. Yeah. So when I finally saw the Japanese version, and in the current version that's on DVD is the English version is almost completely uncut, except for the rare instance of nudity in a Godzilla movie. Oh, you mean the foam lumps? I wouldn't call that nudity. I, I would just call that foamy lumps. Yeah, we were talking about Westworld earlier. Yeah, the... Uh, Westworld's a tad more realistic. Yeah, um, I will than, say than, that than this. <laughs> the, the, we're talking about Westworld, the TV show. Yeah, yeah, not the movie, but um, but anyway, so it's just so many things that just undermined it. And so when I finally saw the you know the uncut version, I had so much more appreciation for it. And yeah, it, this is it's a very different sort of movie, uh, but I I like that it's such a different movie, and I'm not opposed to having different tones within a franchise or within a series so long 
as I think it's done well, because there are dark Godzilla films and I like them because they're dark and there are light Godzilla films and I like them that they're light, though they are light with substance. And I think we have Sekizawa to thank for that. So I'm not bothered by that. And that's one of the reasons that I like this. And I wanted to share this actually at the beginning of the podcast, but I just remembered it now. I mentioned that this is one of my favorite Godzilla films. And we've talked about how it's not perfect. It has some issues. But I was reminded actually of uh, a story I heard from uh, Walter Hooper who was the uh, the last man to serve as the the secretary for C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, so he knew C.S. Lewis, and they were friends as well as co-workers back in the, the 50s and early 60s before Lewis died. And I had the privilege of meeting Walter Hooper back when I was in college and hearing him speak. And he told a story that has always stuck with me, which is he had a conversation once with Lewis and Lewis asked him, what do you think is the best book I have ever written? And I may be getting the titles mixed up for his answers, but uh, so I apologize if I get them wrong. But he told him, I think the best book you've ever written is uh, That Hideous Strength. Or, no, I think he said, no, it's Paralandra. And then he asked him, well, which one of, which one of my books is your favorite? And he said, I think my favorite is That Hideous Strength. And Lewis pointed out, so see, the best and your favorite aren't always the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that's always stuck with me because I think you can you can make those sorts of arguments. In fact, actually, when we were in the, the planning stages of this podcast, you we had a discussion much like that. You said, okay, how would you rate these movies as films and which one of them are your personal favorites? That was one of the first things I wanted to do. Yeah. Start, that was able to get us a snapshot of how we think of the series. Yeah. Yeah. And we've looked at the differences after we after we examined it, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's a very interesting, nuanced way of looking at things. You can like something; it can even be your favorite, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the best, right? And I think this film is very much an indication of that. It suffers from a lot of things. Part of it's budgetary. Part of it is two creative teams coming together who have different sensibilities and worked in different eras right trying to work together to make something and that shows but in the end it still boils down to do you still enjoy this despite its shortcomings yeah even if it isn't as good as invasion of astro monster or the original or mothra versus godzilla and all of these other things as you point out it's my nostalgic movie this was my introduction to it and to the important. entire franchise. Everybody, yeah, everybody's nostalgia movie in this series is important to them. Yeah. And so I will admit that maybe some of the, the things that I've been talking about could have be colored by the nostalgia, but I like to think that I can be objective enough and say, yeah, that doesn't work, but this really does work. Mm-hmm. And not just look at something purely through nostalgia, but be able to see... Yeah, you the, don't want to be, yeah you're not like worshipping... This movie and getting no. down on your knees and, oh, yes, this is the first movie I ever saw. So, therefore, it's very important. And, yeah. And, therefore, the greatest movie ever. You know, like, just there like are the people way, like that. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Just like the way I think about Geigen, though. I mean, I know, oh, yeah, this has some, this has some issues. And a lot of it goes back to budget, which the budget stuff, you can't do anything about it. You, 
I, it's one of those things where anybody that, that gets, ends up working on a project, you, you end up being like, Oh, we, I was planning to do this, but we don't have money for that. So we have to work and find it out. And that's all behind the scenes. And you have to just figure out what you want to make more important. You know, you spend the money there and you spend the money strategically in the right places, you get a lot of explosions or you like Geigen, you get a lot of fire. And so you, you wow the audience some, somehow still, but it, you're not, it's never going to be that perfect project that you just have just tons of money and tons of time. And, and so you end up with what you get and there's nothing you can do about the, the budget. I mean, but back then, especially in that country where there wasn't much you could do in the way of budget, there wasn't going to be some super rich person that was showing up and be like, Hey everybody, I'm going to produce this. And, we're, we're going to make it the next Japan sinks or whatever, you know, the yeah. blockbuster film. And, and so, and not everything's going to be Japan sinks. So you end up with this, but it, I don't think Geigen's perfect either by any circumstance. And I don't think it's one of, uh, maybe it's one of the better ones ish of the franchise. I don't know. It depends on what you think, but it, well, the script certainly is, I think. Oh yeah, that's interesting as all get out. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't. I, I by no means do I think Icon's perfect. Uh, it, it has some. It has some issues too, and I, I'll readily uh, admit most of those too. But 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 this thing it does. This movie has a lot going for it. There are some really good parts in it that that I think mostly overshadow the 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 weirdness that goes back to I think mainly the aliens. Yeah, uh, but it's just a, uh, and I do. I've said this enough on this podcast where like I, I enjoy things that are different. And so you gotta even work against yourself a little bit and, and say, okay, yes, it is different. And then, and then d- decide on whether it's your kind of different or not. And everybody's going to have a different opinion about these movies, but the, the, that's, what's fun about these seventies films though. They yeah. Have, they're all they're, very different. They're very different. And there's so much, sometimes there's so much going on. That's really awesome. All right, with that, let's move on to part three. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. For part three of the podcast, we will be discussing issues that are either brought up by the film or were going on in Japan at the time that the film was released. And for today's episode, since we are talking about the end of the Showa series of Godzilla movies, we decided that we would talk about Emperor Hirohito, who was posthumously named Emperor Showa, because that's where the names of both the Showa series and the Heisei films in the Godzilla series get their names. They, uh, they're named after the emperors who were... Uh, reigning at the time that the films were released. So, today we will be talking about Emperor Hirohito's first trip to the United States in 1971, his first press conference in 1975, and then the Yasukuni Shrine. So, we'll, uh, we'll start with, uh, with his visit. Emperor Hirohito and his wife, Nagako Kuni, visited Anchorage, Alaska, September 26, 1971, where they were greeted by President Nixon. He was, as Nixon put it, quote, the first reigning monarch in Japan's long history to step on foreign soil. It was a short visit, however. The, the emperor's plane landed at 10 p.m. and departed at 11.40 p.m. It was a, a stopover during Hirohito's trip to Europe. 
While Hirohito is only a figurehead, this was one of many foreign trips he made in his lifetime to improve Japan's diplomatic image. Before the war, he spent three months in Europe as a 20-year-old crown prince, making him the first member of the Japanese royal family to leave Japan. So that was already significant. Then from Anchorage, he spent three days in Britain, his first official state visit, and from there he went to Bonn, West Germany, and Paris. And at St. James Place, he asked the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., Walter Annenberg, to pass along his thanks to President Nixon for hosting him at Anchorage. The reason why he went to Bonn was because Bonn was the capital of West Germany at the time. Mm. That's one reason why he didn't go to Berlin. Right. Ah, obviously. Yeah. And one of the things that makes this visit significant is actually something, Brian, that we talked about on this podcast before, and that is... Just 12 years before this, in 1960, President Eisenhower was had to cancel a state visit because to Japan of the, yeah, because, because of, the, of protests, the riots. Yeah, the protests over the security treaty. Uh-huh. And no U.S. president had returned to Japan since then. Wow. Yeah. And the reason why Hirohito didn't make an extended stay, an extended visit in, Japan, in the United States is because he wanted the U.S. president to be able to return the honor. Oh, that's good. N- uh, president Nixon spoke of the, quote, web of political, economic, and cultural ties, end quote, that had bound the countries together in the 25-plus years since the end of the war. By this, uh, by this point, Japan had become an independent nation. Okinawa was, as we discussed in the previous episode, was about to be returned to Japan. Four prime ministers had met with four presidents— Japan was interested in America's pastime of baseball, while Americans at the time were interested in Japanese art. And both countries cooperated on outer space and environmental research. There's been a massive warming of relations between the two countries. A lot of tourism, interest in Jap- like you said, interest in, in Japanese art. And so th- there's a lot of cultural exchange. It- it's still happening now, but I mean, we, we it's kind of the cool japan yeah i was gonna say it's kind of the pre- uh, this was kind yeah. of when you had the precursors to cool japan starting to yeah. take effect this was japan and, and it's soft power and, and there's a lot of soft power in, in cool japan and and so this is really the what we've covered so far in history has been the birth of that phenomenon mm-hmm. and this was also a really big deal for anchorage and the the state of alaska as well you got to keep in mind Alaska at this point had only been a state for 12 years and they had the smallest population of in any state in the union at the time. It was, and it was close to Japan, both geographically and economically. There are Alaskan islands that are closer to Japan than they are to Anchorage. Let that sink in for a, a little bit there. And also at the time, at at the very least, Japan bought 90 Five percent of Alaska's exports in minerals, wood, and gas. Wow! Oh yeah, raw materials because Japan, as mm-hmm. we've been discussing, is uh, you know not much uh, energy at home to to get you no know, oil fields and all that other fun stuff. And so oh, yeah. yeah, Alaska has lots of resources in that department, tons of land, forestry, all that. Uh huh. And afterward, Nixon recognized the meeting's significance by requesting that a commemorative plaque be placed on the spot where he met with 
the Emperor at Elmendorf Air Base. And it includes excerpts from both Nix's welcoming remarks and Hirohito's response, which if you go on YouTube or you go to the uh, to the Nixon Foundation website, you can actually watch this 13 minute video that has highlights of that visit. And I, I watched the whole thing. You see Hirohito and his wife arrive. You get to hear the speeches that they both get. Uh, Hirohito gave it in Japanese, and then there was someone there who translated it um, uh, for everybody. It's really interesting to watch because this is the first time I've seen video of Hirohito speaking. And we've come across things that said he was you know, he was kind of shy. He wasn't fond of public speaking. Yeah, and like I think one of the stuff, some of the stuff we read was like uh, he was socially awkward to a certain extent. Yeah, like just. Yeah, like interpersonal hobnobbing and all that. Like it wasn't his, not that he was like horrible at it, but it was just not his strong Yeah, suit. it's not his strong so suit. It, yeah, and he and, was raised like alone, you know, yeah. pretty sequestered life in the beginning. And so it sort of makes sense. Yeah. And it, it was really interesting to watch that because you can see, definitely see a, a contrast in both of these leaders' personalities and speaking styles. Nixon is very much showing some statesmanship he's he feels very natural in what he's doing and hirohito is very stoic mm-hmm. very uh, unanimated i guess you could say almost stiff i don't want to say stiff but almost uh, very very calm and he whips out a little piece of paper he reads it off and then after he speaks for a couple of minutes there's another japanese guy there who translates for everybody mm-hmm and so it was, it was very interesting, and you can definitely tell that Nixon is extending as many graces as he can to mm-hmm. this man, because I think he recognized this is not something that Hirohito is quite used to. Yeah, and, and then there's the, the incongruency, too, was when uh, that, that very, very, very famous fi- picture of uh, Hirohito and MacArthur. And, yes. And MacArthur's, like, a lot taller than him, and, and is just... Um, Totally looks like he's dominating over uh, Hirohito in this photo. Also, MacArthur kind of did a lot of work with respect to not only changing the image of the emperor, but also telling the United States this is what he's really about and and this is what he's he's like. Because at, the, at some point, we, we talked about um, in one of our previous episodes about the fact that the emperor came to MacArthur and wanted to apologize for the war, apologize for everything, and MacArthur said, "No, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do it that way." He wanted but, to maintain um, his dignity. Yeah, and the the general said that, "quote He was an emperor inherent by birth, but in this instant, I knew I faced the first gentleman of Japan in his own right." And, and so, yeah, the, the I think the United States clearly knew how important uh, Emperor Hirohito was, and and just how. You know how he works as a person, and and you know what the real what the real Hirohito is like. Yeah, the interesting thing is though, this meeting, as momentous as it was, as brief as it was, almost didn't happen. Relations between the U.S. and Japan were kind of strained at that point because, again, something we talked about in a previous episode, the Nixon shocks and his visit to China, and exports and uh-huh. all that. Yeah, yeah, which he didn't inform Japan that they, he was going to do any of those things beforehand. Yeah, hence the term shock. Yeah, so it just it threw him off. 
So the the Japanese government initially declined the U.S.'s invitation to meet the president during that stopover. But they eventually accepted after confirming the will of Hirohito. So obviously this was something the emperor really wanted to do. And getting assurances that this meeting would not be used for political purposes. They mm-hmm. very much wanted to avoid that. Yeah, so, state visit only. Yeah. So the president and the emperor were able to meet for about 25 minutes, followed by a 10-minute session with Foreign Minister Takeo Fukuda and with some other officials. Mm-hmm. So, But you know, it was only for about, about an hour and 40 minutes, like I said, 10 p.m. to 11.40 p.m. So it was just long enough so they could refuel the plane and go. Mm-hmm. But Hirohito did make an extended stay in the United States four years later in 1975, the year this film was released, I might add. And that's when he was able to meet President Gerald Ford, who was vice president under under Nixon. And he visited New York, Boston, Chicago, the West Coast, and Hawaii. Yeah, it's rather weird. One of, one of these things that we read, it said that Japanese uh, travel agents, they booked Japanese tourist groups to the cities that the emperor would visit at the time that he was visiting. And, and it was called like the bonsai tour and they, it, it was all about, ins- you mean like the tree? Yeah. Well, maybe no, it was no. long live. Yeah. That's yeah. what bonsai means. Everybody. Yeah. Long live. And then the idea was, is that the emperor would show up and then there'd be a whole bunch of Japanese tourists there, uh, lauding him and everything. And, uh, the emperor and the imperial house did not like that. They thought it was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. You can tell that, there had been some serious mindset changes over the decades. And then a few weeks later, on October 31st, 1975, after he got, had gotten back from his extended visit to the United States, Hirohito held his first ever press conference in the Imperial Palace, and it was televised. So this was a huge deal. Just as big of a deal, if not maybe more so than the first time that he was on the radio and the oh, yeah. where he were, that was when everybody heard him speak for the first time ever. That is a very interesting speech. If you can find the recording of it, it's on YouTube. It's really interesting yes. to listen to. Yeah, it is. Anyway, the press conference is noteworthy for three things. Primarily one of the most often talked about ones is when journalist Koji Nakamura who was participating as a representative of the London Times, uh, was one of a few reporters who was allowed to ask unscripted questions. And he dared to break the taboo of asking about the emperor's war responsibility. He said, quote, At the White House, your majesty referred to that most unfortunate war which I deeply deplore. May we interpret this to mean that you yourself feel responsible for the war itself, including the fact that Japan waged it in the first place. In addition, may I ask you to share your thoughts about so-called war responsibility? End quote. One heck of a loaded question, I might add. Well, and it was definitely a long one, too. And as you know, yeah. it was very well crafted to, to do a specific purpose. And I'm pretty sure that's when, you know, everybody does a spit take uh, with their coffee. Yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there was a reporter there named David Tharp, who was the only non-Japanese participant in the press conference. He wrote in an 
the English language Japanese newspaper Mainichi Daily News that all of his Japanese colleagues waited with intense anticipation to hear the emperor's answer because this was such a taboo question. You just you didn't talk about this. He said that they were all just sitting there, their pens and papers out, just waiting for what Hirohito was going to say next. Right. Because I think they were just shocked that this guy had the guts to even say this. It's like something they probably all wanted to ask, but they could never bring themselves to do it. And then someone actually did it. Yeah. Yeah. Here is what the emperor said. Quote, concerning such a figure of speech, I have not done much study of these literary matters and so do not understand well and am unable to answer. I'm sure it's probably a very difficult thing to answer because I don't think there really is a good answer. I mean, what do you say? Yes, it was my fault or no, it wasn't. Neither one of those is going to make everybody happy. So saying something neutral is was probably a wiser move for him. I think giving a non-answer that he kind of did, it, it was a way to avoid saying something very memorable and uncomfortable to potentially a lot of people. Another thing that the press conference is known for is, again, a subject that we've talked about before on this podcast, that being Okinawa. He expressed regret over not visiting Okinawa at this point in time, which had been devastated during the war and later turned into an American military outpost, as we discussed in our last episode. He said blandly that while Okinawa had, quote, various problems in the past, end quote, he hoped the island and its residents would do well in the future. And given that by that point they had only just been returned to the United to Japan, only a few years, it was probably a nice thing to say because the Okinawans were having to once again get used to the idea of Hirohito being their emperor now. And he wanted to probably strike a conciliatory tone considering all, all of the fact that you know the island was essentially sacrificed in the war obviously you know it's like well you're going to be part of japan again and we're going to try to be nice and maybe it might have been a slight mea culpa on on the emperor because he knows exactly how it went but arguably the most infamous moment in the press conference was when hirohiro was asked what he thought of the atomic bombing of hiroshima a city he had visited three times by 1975. The emperor replied, quote, I think that the dropping of the atomic bomb was unfortunate, but it was an event that occurred in the midst of war. For the people of Hiroshima, it was a pitiful thing, but I believe it could not be helped. I'm sure that was probably something that was a little difficult to swallow. But arguably, he is correct. This is a completely different kind of war that Japan was fighting. Yeah. I mean, it was a holy war, and it was based on the worship of the emperor, and it was an extremely militaristic period. Yeah. Uh, and so it's kind of like the way we talked about Unit 731. Mm-hmm. When you're in a war, you're going to use everything. And that is exactly what the United States did, too. And, and really, it, it, it was a war. Both sides had declared war. This was, uh, it was extremely intense yeah. to say the mild, you know, put it in the, even begin to say. 
I'm just saying that I think for for some people who are hearing this in Japan, it's probably not what they would have wanted to hear their emperor say, depending mm-hmm. on how they feel about the war. Yeah, exactly. There's a huge asterisk for that. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody in Japan when they heard this was upset about it, but there still would have been people in this who would not have liked hearing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's sort of darn if you do, darn if you don't, when you have a, a kind of reaction like this. But, I mean, he was answering to the best of his ability. I mean, for me, that satisfies me because I think no matter what you think of what, how the war went or whatever, that this was a, a massive sacrifice on behalf of the Japanese people and the whole war is, I mean. And so it's very, it's just different. You know, the war in Europe was a lot different. It was. And especially as far as what drove the reasons for the war. The reasons in in Asia were completely different. And so it's just different. I probably would have expected more Americans not to understand this answer than Japanese. You're probably right there. But the thing is, you're, the, the bombings you're, are looked at very differently over here. When you're locked into a fight like this, you know that's that's the way it works. And, and Japan literally was not going to give up, and and that's just how it happened. And that's because of the nature of the war. They, it, it wasn't going to happen. I feel, and, that, and that's what was proven in Okinawa. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was anything and everything to to keep it to keep it going. And it, it wasn't going to be one of those things where. You know, probably not very many people in the military. They they weren't gonna just say, "Oh, that's it, everybody." You know, that's not gonna happen. No, we're gonna move our conversation now to the uh, Yasukuni Shrine. Uh, this is a very uh, interesting issue. It's a, uh, and um, we're we're not gonna really tackle this like a lot of other stuff does. But there there are articles about this all over the place. This is one of the most predominant things that's discussed in Japanese nationalism today and so we're not talking about anything that anybody else isn't talking about you know this has been talked to death in a lot of circles and we're going to uh take a look at this issue though because it's impossible to ignore this uh and this is also something that was going on at the time this movie was released and it's something that the dynamic of how everything worked with yasukuni shrine changed around this time of uh, period of time so we're not going to take a position on this frankly i don't know if i have one i don't I'm think not, we're in a place to take a position on I'm, this I, yeah i'm not japanese it's a, yeah it's a purely japanese thing well it's more of a japanese slash east asia thing yeah and not really us and america is really only tangential to this very uh, tangential controversy yeah and and we're not uh shinto and and we're not uh we're not a lot of things that that, that puts the, you know, that really makes us have any kind of stake in this argument. It's not really an issue. It's not an issue, really. It's a it's a nexus of identity, and and since we our identity is clearly not Japanese, uh, we're just going to look at this and, and see what we can learn because this is very interesting. But it's not an issue that you solve. There is no magic answer to it, and this isn't a, this isn't really an argument either because. You're not going to change anyone's mind. No. You know, everybody knows how they how they come down on this, uh, especially if they're Japanese or if they're East Asian. And so uh, there's not really um, a side or, or anything. I mean, it's it's this 
issue is what you make of it if you have mm-hmm. stake in it and, and but, but that's one thing that is just so uh interesting about issues of identity no, no one's going to be coming in and saying oh yeah i'm just going to change the whole thing about the way i view everything that happened in the past because this is all all about the past uh the, and the past came roaring back in the mid 70s regarding uh the oscuni shrine and so this is one of those things that nothing good comes out of arguing about it you know yeah, like a lot of things. Yeah, this is one of those things that no, nothing's going to change, and so it's always going to be there. I'm a fan of just live and let live, and I think that is one of the cornerstones of the the U.S.-Japan alliance and the U.S.-Japan relationship, because you know, dragging all of this stuff from the past out, does it do any good between the two of our countries? No. Nope. And when uh, all this stuff happens with the Asakuni Shrine over the years, the United States hasn't taken uh, any sides on this. And it's because, no. it's because we're allied and because there's so the, the situation is just the total opposite of what it used to be during the war. Absolute total opposite. Couldn't get any more opposite. We're going to look at, at this and just analyze how this, this shrine plays such a huge role and why it's just this massively politically charged thing. It is very interesting to learn about, though. Mm-hmm. And it, it tells you a lot about how Japanese people totally differ from each other a lot of ways in, in how they view history. And then just how you want to remember history. Yeah. You know, because there's a losing side and a winning side to, to a war. And then the losing side has to figure out how they're going to view it. And because somebody's got to surrender at the end, right? And yeah. Just like we've said, just like the emperor seemed to say was, war is war. It happened during war. The destruction that resulted from it could not be helped. Yeah. And, and it is, it is a, a matter of fact, just way to look at things. And, and then we look at this shrine. Now, let's go into the, the initial history of this because this shrine is actually a lot newer than I thought it was. It was the year 18... 1869. Yeah. It was founded, uh, it was established, I should say, by Emperor Meiji. It's a Shinto shrine. Yes. And the thing you have to understand about Shintoism is that a huge part of Shintoism is the veneration of the dead, veneration of ancestors. Yes, definitely. It, it, Worship read, of ancestors. Yeah. Read about uh, East Asian religions and then just go into Shinto. Shinto is definitely its own thing. Yeah. It commemorates those who died serving Japan since 1853. That was initially what Emperor Meiji was doing with it. It lists the names, origins, birth dates, and places of death of 2,466,532 men, women, and children, including various pet animals. And they believe that that respect for the dead is best expressed in the Shinto religion, by treating the dead as if they were still alive. So there are a lot of rituals involving offering food and words of appreciation. Pacification are, of, of the spirits. Yeah, the that are, yeah, and they repeat those every day. And there are a lot of festivals held throughout the year at the shrine with over 5 million visitors each year. Yeah, there's always something happening around the shrine, too. Yeah. There's lots of, tons of activity. Yeah. And, and though, it's, it's located very close to the Imperial yeah. Palace. Yeah, Chiyoda. In mm-hmm. Tokyo. Yeah. Those enshrined here are considered equal despite their social status or rank. 
And this includes, believe it or not, women and schoolgirls who helped with relief on the battlefield, students who worked in factories for war efforts, and Taiwanese and Korean people who, quote, died as Japanese, end quote, among other kinds of people who were there. I.e. they might have been drafted, etc. Yeah. Yeah. 1975 was the last time that Emperor Hirohito visited the shrine. And that was the last time he did in his life. And then uh, in 1978 was uh, was our three years after this movie. That was the big one. That was when uh, war criminals, was it 14 of them specifically? 14 Class A war criminals. Yeah. But in total, you had 1,068. 14 of them were the were the big ones, the yeah. Class A. These were the ones who were executed. Yes. Once that As happened, we talked about in our previous episodes. Yeah. Once that happened, it became much more of an issue. Yeah. They were talking about it as early as 1969, but they didn't do it until 78. Yeah. And nobody found out for six months after that until yeah. 1979. They, they didn't tell the public at all. At this point, the emperor's reaction uh, was not good. Uh, there were specifically a couple of them that he was very upset about uh, that occurring with, and he differed with the, uh, the people in charge of the shrine about this. And he uh, stopped visiting the shrine after that completely. And uh, also Emperor Akihito has also never, He's never been visited. to the shrine since becoming emperor. Yeah, he would always send a lesser member of the uh, royal family to the to the shrine if anybody from the royal family visited. And so the pivot point that I'm talking about here is it was at this point, after this revelation, that was when the strategy began of pushing prime ministers to visit the shrine. That was when this strategy changed to this. And so that was that's been the dynamic uh, still to today. And so that was why this is a, an important issue at this point in time in, in the mid to late seventies. And this had a great deal of consequences. The first time this was done, it was a, a huge uh, affront to uh, various other East Asian countries, specifically China and South Korea. Uh, but I would say uh, other countries that had also uh, gone through what those two countries did. And so they were very upset about it. And China and and these other countries, they said specifically that the sticking point with the shrine was specifically the war criminals. That yeah. was the thing that just totally changed how everything worked with other East Asian countries specifically. Yeah. China in particular has been very outspoken about this. And then this creates a lot of hurt feelings and then it, it creates feeling, hurt feelings on the other side and then, and then it just goes back and forth, as you know. At one point, China actually offered the, the, like a compromise where they said, if you remove those 14 war criminals from the shrine, then we'll be okay with it. And that just, nothing ever came out of that. Um, yeah. Because probably the sides, it's one were, of several the such sides were quite immobile yeah. on this issue. Yeah, it's one of several such proposals that's been made over the years. So there are a lot of varying opinions among the, among the Japanese about what the, even the shrine means. But also their reason for visiting it is different. People visit it for different reasons. And so there's, there's no consensus or whatever on that topic either. Because for some, it is simply remembrance of those who were lost. And for some people, that's really it. And it's not this gigantic deal. 
Yeah. And there isn't this massive amount of uh, symbolism going on on multiple levels. Yeah. I, I feel like for for a lot of people, going to the shrine is about remembering relatives. Yeah. Like it, it's it doesn't a have anything to do with observance. It's customary sort of observance. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the war criminals. No. And for some, it's a religious ritual. But then the, what really explodes out of that is when a prime minister visits, what role does he have? Is he coming yeah. as the prime minister or is he coming as a, just as a civilian? There's yeah, there's debate in Japan about whether or not prime ministers go to the shrine to visit as a shijin or private person or as shosho, which is prime minister. The way a lot of prime ministers have handled it is they said, I'm going as a private citizen, but some of them will do things like sign the guest book as prime minister. Some will sign it as a, as just their name and all that. It just, it muddies the waters. And then they could say, well, it it was just my title. I wasn't visiting as the prime minister. That was just what I'm called. Yeah. And it's like, okay, but there's all, there's all of this uh, back and forth going on and just like but whenever one of these visits takes place then then we have the the reaction that's by now is pretty scripted and the protest i mean we know what the two, we know what everybody's going to say when it happens because this has happened numerous times now um, yeah honestly one of the 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 best responses from any prime minister about this is is koizumi who was prime minister from 2001 to 2006 it was a very nuanced answer i thought where he said I don't go to – he visited Yasukuni every year, but it was as a private citizen, not as prime minister. And he said that he did it not out of reverence, but out of remembrance. So for him, it was about remembering history and making sure that that didn't happen again. And he was from a one generation lower, you know, newer than, than the generation that all of this actually happened during the war you know so he because he didn't he wasn't involved with the war and all that he uh got to have he got to be able to use that distance between him and everybody else before him and he and there isn't so much of a sort of loaded amount of meaning and so he was able to to nuance it and just say you know no this isn't why this isn't why i'm doing this at least implying that and, and so he was able to work it a little bit differently than other prime ministers have over the years. There's also a significant number of Japanese who they don't particularly like the shrine. And part of that goes back to what created the pacifist Japan at the end of the war in the first place. And that was the position that the, the military and, and especially the, the clique that controlled the military during the war, for the most part, that they used the Shinto religion and the veneration of the emperor as a god in order to prime the population to serve as, you know, to sacrifice themselves for whatever the military wanted to do. And that they, they utilized that they utilized Shinto and state Shinto in order to, to accomplish this. And so at that point, that was when you had protesters in Japan and they would say, they, they would go up to the military hierarchy and say, you killed my family members because of your war and you sacrifice them, and it's not to be venerated, for at least the reason, you know, why it was done. And, and so there's that, there's that component too. And they, and they believe that uh, the shrine represents the sort of rise of, of uh, the bad kind of nationalism, you know, the militant kind of nationalism that, that is uh, un- unhealthy and uh, not productive at all. And so they see the, the sort of the old 
coming back uh, and the and, and and all of the baggage that goes with it because there's a mount, huge amount of baggage with all of these all of the, all of this argument but yeah. um, I mean yeah so there's that side of it and then but there are numerous there's so many different sides to this yeah uh, a related thing to that is the the post-war constitution that we gave them separated Shintoism from the state so there's no longer a state-run Shinto religion. You know, so, the emperor is still the titular yes. head of yeah. uh, Shintoism. So anytime that there is a prime minister who is visiting the shrine, it is seen as a violation of the separation of the Shinto from the state. Yeah. It's because they are trying to avoid the the toxic nationalism that can come out of a state-run religion separating Shinto from the state was one of the goals of the new constitution to prevent something like that from happening, which we talked about a fair amount in our previous episodes. So I can totally understand this. So they want to avoid any sort of semblance of that. Yes. And there have been a couple of court cases too, that we'll get into about this, that, that, I mean, this, this battle has, has extended into numerous venues uh, about uh, so many different mixed feelings that are completely immutable uh and, and but we're the, the there's another side that we have to talk about and that is the the uh the people who uh became in charge of the shrine in the mid 70s uh because it was the son of the guy that was in charge of it before uh who the apparently the emperor was not very um keen on in a memorandum released in 2006 which was made up largely of journals and notebooks that were kept by people who were acquainted with the emperor during the the latter portions of his life hirohito references yoshitami matsudaira who is believed to have been the grand steward of the imperial household after the war and his son nagayoshi became chief priest of yasukuni and decided to enshrine the war criminals in 1978 the emperor is quoted as as saying, Matsudaira had a strong wish for peace, but the child didn't know the parent's heart. That's why I have not visited the shrine since. This is my heart. Some have speculated that Hirohito was concerned that the enshrinement of the war criminals would then reignite debate over his responsibility for the war. Which, that's what that did was. The enshrinement of the war criminals sort of rebirthed the, the whole thing. And and once you do something like that, then then all of it's gonna start getting all over everybody. Yeah, and, and so that and that's what's happened. And um, and it also sounds like he has some connections here with Yasukuni, some fairly personal connections as well. Mm-hmm. You know, this the 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 priest being the son of somebody he knew in the imperial household. I can see a little bit of of, of tension uh, rising from that. And so this side that that did th- this action, uh, they're they're definitely the more hardliners. But there are also other groups of, of people there. The, the that one organization that's the the bereaved families organization that's so extremely powerful in Japan. They are a huge lobby, and they uh, have a lot to say about stuff. You know, like they they come from the direction that is this is to be glorified as a sacrifice to the emperor. You know the the war dead. You know that's the dynamic, and you're very 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 likely not going to be able to change their minds about it because that's how they view history. 
And that's just how it works. And Japan, like I said, was fighting a completely different war. There was no separate thing between, you know, militarism, imperialism, emperor worship, and nationalism. There's no distinction in between these four different terms during the war in Japan, uh, especially from 1868 to 1945. It was all intertwined. It, all of it equaled everything else. And so everything came with it. You were, they were sacrificing themselves for the emperor, and this was the case for them. And so it is to be glorified because that, that was the old way of doing things. And then shortly after the war, uh, the emperor renounced his status as a deity. There's also another subset of, of, of a Japanese who they don't want their families dead to be enshrined in the shrine at all. And they want the names removed from the list, and they want the spirits to be out of the shrine. And, and that's what uh, some of our court cases are about. The thing is, is that the religious authorities, they don't remove spirits from shrines at all, let alone this one. No. And, and if somebody asks them, they're not going to do it. Mm-mm. And that's just not how it works. And, and so I guess once the war criminals are in there, I guess it's going to be forever yeah one court case uh involved a number of koreans and they were very upset about the fact that it was like workers in both the military and the civilian realm who uh were working for japan and what happened was those names were enshrined at the yasukuni shrine and it was apparently the uh japanese government that assisted with the getting all the names for this and so they sued in Japanese court asking uh, for the issue to be resolved, and then the uh, court dismissed them. But uh, this was uh, that's, that's another group that is another specific East Asian group that they, uh, they don't want spirits to be enshrined there. And this is often involved the groups of bereaved families, uh, like interest groups specifically. Another one was a group of Taiwanese people who sued... And that was in Osaka, and it was over the visits of Koizumi to the shrine. And what happened was the court actually, and this is an Osaka court, they actually agreed and said that the visits were unconstitutional. However, there was no uh, redress that was given to the plaintiffs in the case. And so the other, yeah, the other realm of these cases is about whether it's constitutional or not for the prime minister to visit the shrine, uh, especially in a religious kind of way, because then it's about the, the constitutional aspects. And so the, their, uh, the, the battle has been into courts as well. A more recent case involved uh, both Japanese and Taiwanese uh, bereaved families, and they sued the state and they sued Yasukuni Shrine. And they said that they wanted the shrine, the enshrinement of their relatives to be annulled. They wanted to get rid of that status, but they were again dismissed. Yeah. So, so this has been a, a legal argument as well. And so there's um, many, many different components, many different parts to this, a lot of different moving parts to this. One of the things talking about Shinto that has added some fuel to this fire is in Shinto religion, it is believed that enshrinement more or less absolves that particular soul of any wrongs that they committed in their life. It can be said that 
the war criminals have been oh uh, yeah uh yeah uh, more or less, i guess to use an american western religious idiom it would be saying that the war criminals sins have been forgiven that actually isn't a comparison but otherwise it's Hard to again plug an American thing into a Japanese thing and make any sense, but yeah, yeah, I totally get what you mean. I'm just, I'm just essentially hoping that, their sins are absolved. Yeah, I'm just hoping. Know, I'm just bringing yeah. that up as a means of yeah. explaining to the listeners yeah. what exactly we're we're dealing with here. Yeah, that's essentially what happens. Yeah, and, and so that's where another reason for why there was such a big deal. That's a, a re- that's one of the reasons for why this was such a big deal. Yeah, and there have been proposals to try to make things easier we've hinted at it a little bit before yeah. you know the chinese have said if you can just remove the the spirits of the of the war criminals we're fine with it there have also been proposals for a secular war memorial yeah try to secularize your way out of the issue yeah and anytime that a, a, a secular memorial has been brought up it ends up being rejected though they reject it on the grounds of technical issues at least that's what they say. It's something to lean on for other reasons yeah. that you don't want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, the LDP has long insisted that the that the shrine itself is protected by freedom of religion because they have freedom of religion now in the new constitution. Mm-hmm. It's weird that, that, the, that the shrine itself has been rejecting these uh, proposals because there's already a secular memorial ceremony held every year for the war dead and, the, and their families in Budokan. So something's already offered along those lines, so it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to have a secondary memorial. Others have proposed that besides removing the the war criminals, they've said, you know, the shrine said, no, we can't do that. I said, okay, how about you remove all of the spirits and then make a new shrine and then put everybody but the war criminals back and then put the war criminals somewhere else. And they've rejected that proposal as well. That's a very complex procedure. I'm sure it is. I, I I'm not a Shintoist, so I I wouldn't know, but I'm sure it is a you know, a very long involved yeah. procedure. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly how out of order that is in in Shinto, but I would imagine considerably. Yeah, but still, I, I see the heart of what these people are trying to get at. They're trying to do something that is theologically and religiously sound, mm-hmm. while also being able to be respectful of everyone's wishes. Yeah. And so I applaud the Very effort. Very hard to do. Yeah, I applaud Almost the effort. Impossible. So, yeah. Yeah, as you can tell, this is a complex and a difficult issue. But I was thinking about it during this discussion. There is a way you can actually tie this back to, uh, to the film. Because uh, one, one of the themes that we see in the film is one of identity. Uh, particularly when it comes to uh, Katsura and her struggles. And as we've mentioned... All of these issues that we've been talking about are about identity. So, as we, we were mentioning, you know, with a lot of the a lot of things that were occurring in uh, Japan in the seventies, related to the war, related to the emperor, related to this shrine, all have to uh, all go back to dealing with national identity and wrestling with that, and understanding one's history and understanding who they are as a nation and, and as people. How people remember their dead is, is never going to be an easy subject. Yeah, and so you see that in microcosm, you know, with Katsura because she's wrestling with with a lot of things. She's having ideas pressed upon her, and she's trying to figure out 
what's real and what is her and what isn't her and trying to figure out what kind of a person that she is. I think it's a very it's a very Japanese uh, thing to think about, particularly in the mid 70s. But I think it's also it's a very human thing as well. We all in one point or another have to struggle with our identities, uh, both as nations, both as communities and as people. So I think it's something that we can all understand on some level, even if it's difficult to understand the specific details, as we've been mentioning here with Yasukuni in particular. And frequently when, when American and Japanese politicians meet and, and talk about this, just like when uh, Prime Minister Abe visited Pearl Harbor, the thing is that the United States and Japan are bound together now so closely and have so much in common. And have so much common goals, too. All of the past, it isn't as important as what's going on now and the way we are now, which is extremely close. So, Brian, how did Japan's GDP growth go this year? In 1975, we had 3.09% growth. And through the rest of the 70s, late 70s and into the early 80s, which these are all the years we don't have a Godzilla film for a while, maybe a number of years, uh, in 1976, the economic growth was 3.97%. In 1977, 439 In 1978, 5.27%. In 1989, 5.48%. 1980, 2.81%. 1982, 3.37%. 1983, 3.06%. And 1983, 3.06%. And so these are all healthy numbers. And uh, all through this period is some great amounts of economic growth. Yeah, it leads us into the 1980s, which were a very prosperous time for Japan. All right, Brian, uh, I've very much been enjoying this episode. I very much enjoyed this film and uh, all of our discussions. But it's now time to, uh, to put this episode of Kaiju Vision Radio in the can and uh, put the show, a, uh, the show a series behind us and move on to, our, to the next leg of our Godzilla journey. Speaking of history, this Godzilla movie coming up, Return of Godzilla 1984, is one for the history books itself. It's amazing, and it is the beginning of our Heisei era. I'm looking forward to it. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchant, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara!